seated. Once upon a time, three orphans lived in a rustic cabin in the woods several miles from a rugged mining town that was situated among forested hills. The eldest brother was considerably older than his little brother and sister who were twins. They had never known their parents, but their big brother loved them faithfully, always protected them and always provided for them. They had no other needs. One day in early springtime, a blanket of wet snow still covering the earth, the older brother had very important business at a location that was beyond the mining town, and he left instructions that his siblings would follow him. Later in that day, how will we know where you are? They asked, concern rising in their voices. I will take the very best route, their brother said, and I want you to follow in the footprints that I leave in the snow. You must not fail to follow my steps. Continue to follow them until you reach me. The twins looked with wide eyes, fixed upon their faithful brother, and assured him that they would do that. And when the time came for the mission to start, the twins ventured out in their brother's footsteps. The little brother walked in the left footprint, holding off in his sister's hand, and she placed her every step in his right footprint, and they followed their way, followed his way. Eventually, the footprints led to the top of a ridge that overlooked the town below, and they could see where the footprints led, that it would lead right to the edge of the town and skirt the town there. And they knew what that meant. That meant trouble. They'd been to the town before. And they knew if they got that close to it, they would suffer the mockery and abuse of the town children and most likely the dangerous scorn of a drunken miner or two. They were scared when they saw where the footprints led. Following their brother's steps would lead them into suffering, it seemed. But their mission was to stay on that path no matter what, to go the direction that he led. And in a manner of speaking, the Apostle Peter writes to believers who found themselves in this sort of a situation, in this kind of a position as they followed Christ. Peter counsels and encourages them to continue following in his steps to emulate his pattern of living as they face persecution. Peter calls them, and he calls us, not to deviate from the path, but to actively orient our lives to the way that Jesus lived and died. To walk in His footsteps wherever they might lead. We are, as we learn in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I invite you back to the text there today, 1 Peter chapter 2, we learn here that we are a kingdom of priests. Peter has informed us that we have been called out of the moral darkness to mediate the glories of Christ to a dying world. Well, what does that look like? How do we serve as this chosen nation of priests mediating Christ's glories, explaining to the world and standing before the world as we proclaim this truth? What does that look like? How do we live out that in our lives? 
This is Peter's burden in the second chapter of 1 Peter. And as he as these as we assume that this book, these, this writing, is being read to various churches in what is today Turkey, and sitting among the congregation there, there are individuals who are slaves. A distinct subset of believers who are in fact part of this nation of priests, this holy people, this chosen possession of God. They're in slavery. That's their situation in life. So what does this all mean for slaves? How do slaves follow Jesus' steps as they live out their lives as a chosen kingdom? 1 Peter 2 and verse 18 is no treatise on slavery by any means, but it is counsel to slaves that provides a practical example of what it means to walk in Jesus' footsteps. And as Peter addresses this most practical consideration, we find here as well one of the most theologically rich sections in the entire New Testament. There is truth here that is absolutely vital for our salvation, for our knowledge of God, in this very practical conversation with slaves. So there's much for us to learn. There's much that doesn't touch us culturally, specifically, But there's much for us to learn as we consider what would Peter say to slaves who are in the midst of the congregation? How would he instruct them to live as a nation of priests and mediate the glories of God? Let's first consider again the immediate context. Verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We've taken that to be in the moment when the gospel becomes clear to them by a visitation from God, they will look at your lives and they won't be turned off. They'll realize that though I've criticized, though I've mocked Christians, I've said all kinds of evil against them. There's really nothing in their lives that detracts from the message that I'm hearing in the Gospel. Verse 13, be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What does it look like to glorify God in your life as this kingdom of priests? First we start here. You need to be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but using your free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now he turns to slaves. Servants, we have the translation here. It is applicable to slaves and different levels of slaves. But slaves are to be subject to their own masters, verse 18. Be subject to your own masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What he's saying is fairly clear. Be subject to your masters. That is how you respond to what God has done for you in Christ and how you relate then to others and shine forth the glories of your salvation. You are subject to your masters. This is one of the ways that we silence the ignorance and false charges of unbelievers. 
submission to authority. We find it in verse 13, being subject to the governing authorities. We find it in verse 15, putting to silence their ignorance. And the ending of verse 17 there, to honor the emperor. This is our calling, and now for slaves, that follows through in the relationship that you have with your masters. This means, slaves, you should obey your masters, even when they don't treat you honorably, so that God's name is honored above all else. Now, I think there's obviously some exceptions to this calling. This is not a call to obey the master who causes you to disobey Christ. But the vast percentage of commands that masters give can be honored, and slaves should do that. In application to our own day, certainly there are many commands that employers give that do not compromise our walk with God, and we should honor them. We should be known as individuals who know how to submit to authority and follow through on the directions that we're given, not thoughtlessly. We're always thinking. In fact, we're thinking about things that the, the boss isn't thinking about. The master's not considering. How does this command stand under the authority of God's Word? This is a question we'll always be asking, but we can, in the vast majority of cases, submit to what we're directed to do. It says here, with all respect. I, I think this is a translation that's not as helpful as it should be. The Greek reads, in all fear which is a major theme throughout 1 Peter. In all fear, always is used of the fear of God. And so I think the idea here is slaves motivated by your fear of God subject yourselves to the authority of your masters. Not motivated by fear and intimidation on their part, but motivated by the fear of God, do what is right, and, and honor the direction that you're given. As if this call was not tough enough, he then adds, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You're going to walk into mistreatment. There are masters who are not going to honor you the way that they should, and in that case, you need to do what they direct you to do. This is how you will represent Christ in that situation. Masters held nearly absolute power over slaves in the ancient world. And many were far from fair. The word unjust, in fact, is instructive. It speaks of being twisted. Of being harsh on some level, but really in the sense that it's crooked and dishonest. There will be masters who treat you that way. They will not give you a fair shake. Some of the things that they ask you to do won't be right as far as pertains to you. Do what they ask you to do. Now, many jump in at this point and point a finger at the New Testament writers. Why is it that we do not find the New Testament writers opposing slavery? What's wrong with them? Why do they just tell slaves to submit to their masters and never talk about the fact that slavery is evil? It's a fair question, and I think it's wise for us to work through it briefly as we seek to defend the faith and understand reality. We're not being defensive of these New Testament writers, but let's put ourselves back in that day, not judge them from our day. So putting ourselves back in that day, a Christian writer seeking to topple the institution of slavery would be kind of like someone raging against a mountain that's blocking their view of the sea. 
You could scream and yell at it all day long and say whatever you wanted. It wasn't going to budge anywhere. The church had utterly no capacity to end slavery in the ancient world. There weren't even categories for a discussion about how to end slavery. The New Testament writers were dealing with reality, not seeking social revolution. They were called to make disciples, not create kingdoms. They were ambassadors from a kingdom that already existed. They served their master. They weren't here on earth to create new kingdoms. In doing so, they would slowly change kingdoms, but they were sojourners, ambassadors, not political revolutionaries. Slavery was a pervasive feature also in the ancient culture. It was a pillar of the economic system, and even slaves themselves could not imagine what life would be without slavery. We need to recognize, we need to really work hard at not imposing upon the New Testament a concept of slavery that comes from our historical experience as a nation, which is broken and horrible. The situation in ancient Rome was quite diverse, quite a bit different. First of all, it was not race-based at all. It was not a motivation for slavery. The color of one's skin was irrelevant in slavery at that time. Slavery also had a beneficial side economically as far as the Roman society was concerned, especially for those who sold themselves into slavery and those who sold their children into slavery. Again, we shudder at the thought, and we should. But in that situation, that was a way of economic advance for many, many people. It was a way of getting out of debt. It was a way of dealing with crushing poverty. When we say that we don't believe in slavery, there's an awful lot of people that are enslaved to the lender. And sometimes, it, you ask some of them, it might be just as well to put all of that aside and not have to think about it anymore and just go to work each day and let someone else worry about the bills. This is what many people did as they entered into slavery. Now, it could be harsh and horrible. Many of the slaves were people who were taken in war or captives and were forced into labor, and many of them labored in horrible situations, but it was diverse. We need to recognize there were also many slaves who were doctors, medical doctors, who were professors, who were artisans, who were musicians. And they went home and lived with their families pretty much like anybody else would. They just were slaves as their status in society. And many slaves, I shouldn't say many, but there are occasions where slaves made more than their masters. And slaves were able to work themselves out of slavery, purchasing their own freedom, particularly in urban situations. So we cannot impose our knowledge of slavery upon that situation. It's very distinct very diverse situation what we need to understand then is that the new testament writers shook the foundations of slavery by treating slaves as brothers and sisters in christ it would take a long time before liberation was achieved in worldly cultures but when the foundations of slavery began to fall at the heart and the core of it was christian theology those who were understanding that these slaves in the New Testament are referred to as part of the chosen people of God, the royal priesthood, the kingdom that should show out the light of Christ. In fact, there is nothing indicated anywhere in Scripture where a slave cannot be the leader of a church. 
And so with this thinking there, foundationally, it was carving away at the foundations of slavery. We must understand all of that as we come then to the New Testament commands to slaves to be subject to their masters. There's a lot more going on than is the case when we look at our own situation in this nation. So, as they were talking about slaves being obedient to their masters, we might, in our day, I might talk about how we as a church can help AIDS patients without ever addressing the issue of homosexuality. It does not mean I approve of homosexuality. That's just not the reality I'm addressing at the moment. We're talking about helping people that have AIDS. And so it was here. Slaves, obey your masters. wasn't addressing slavery. It was dealing with real people in the church and how they related to their masters. You need to shine for Christ. That was the command to everyone. But for slaves, it was a unique command in this context. Moving to verse 19 of 1 Peter 2. So verse 18 is the command for slaves to be subject to their masters. For now, And this is a really tough verse. But verse 19, to, to interpret, it says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I think we get the basic sense of it. But this for provides rationale. For this is a gracious thing. That's a, a difficult translation. A gracious thing makes it sound like this is kind of a nice thing to do. That's not the meaning of the original text. This may mean that such behavior is an evidence of grace, God's grace in the slave's life. You do what is right even when mistreated. But the way this phrase is used in the New Testament, the way this word is used, gracious, we should translate it probably reward. This is reward before God. And you see in verse 20, it says, for what credit is it? There's the opposite, meaning, verse 19, What's gracious is the reward of God. This is credit to you. A little complicated there. But when you are mindful of God, this, means, this may mean only that the slave is aware of God, but more pointedly, it may mean that the slave acts in obedience to God and suffers for it. So I'm doing what is right. My master may say, for instance, go steal this from the next door neighbor. And the, master, and, and the slave says, I can't do that and suffers for it. The master may call the slave to lie, and the slave cannot do that and suffers for it. In these situations, you are mindful of God. You are aware of the presence of God. You're living in the fear of God, and you pay the price for it. Anyone who obeys God and suffers unjustly for it gains eternal reward is the idea. That's the idea of this is a gracious thing. This is a reward issue. Now, this is not saying that an employee today should do nothing if abused by an employer. That's not the teaching that we should draw from it. But it does mean that you don't retaliate or otherwise sin in your response. The boss is asking you to do something that's wrong and you pay the price for not doing it because you stand for what's right. It doesn't give you the freedom to retaliate and to sin in your response. It does mean you don't run as if Christians are incapable of handling misuse. You don't pity yourself, but you see yourself under the sovereign authority of God and you move forward with dignity and with honor, but you don't play the game. And lie in return 
and revile in return and retaliate because the boss has been unjust. Now, it may be wise to leave such a job. It may be God-honoring to resist the pressure and stay. The situation differs. This passage is not a direct command to us. Endure whatever the boss throws at you forever. It's not saying that. But in that situation, in that setting, it was saying that there is a reward from God for those who suffer by, for doing what is right. There's no room for sinful, retaliatory, or rebellious responses. Verse 24, now we have argumentation here continuing. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Big deal. You did wrong and you were beaten for it? That's, we move on. That's, you've asked for that. Being a Christian has nothing to do with this issue. The issue is that you did wrong. But, verse 20, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is something God will reward or is an evidence of His grace. Bad behavior followed by punishment is just to serve. That's all that it is. Don't try to get out of it because you're a Christian. Good behavior followed by punishment is an injustice that God will right. And when God gets on your side, the blessings far outweigh the suffering. If we get into this situation a bit, we realize that Peter is instructing the slaves in the congregation, you've got to think differently. You don't go into the situation thinking like everyone else thinks. You think in terms of, I have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. I live above this sinful fight that is going on among unbelievers, and I represent Him by doing what is right, and I can suffer and not fall apart. I can suffer and not retaliate. I can suffer and shine as an example for Christ. It's a high calling. And in verses 21 through 25, Peter now reveals the foundations of his instruction. We say, Peter, who do you think you are? Where did you come up with this idea? How do you know this is right? Notice now how Peter defends his position here and how slaves should respond to unjust masters based on what God has revealed and what history has revealed of Christ's redeeming grace. Follow this carefully. There's a decided reason for Peter's instructions, and as we grasp his reasoning, we learn to see and interpret life like a follower of Christ. There's no one in this room, I'm confident, who is a slave. You don't have a master. And I'm confident, certainly, that you're not under the Roman system of slavery. But think of how he reasons with them. This applies to every one of us to think this way, to understand how the gospel transforms the way that we relate to other people in tough times, in times of suffering. We look at those, uh, those Christological foundations beginning at verse 21 where Christ's sufferings provide an example for us to follow. That's significant. You don't get on that page right away. We have to learn to get there. Christ's sufferings are an example to follow. Not just a means of my salvation, but His sufferings, His death, His torture is also an example to follow. What does that mean? Verse 21. For to this you have been called. 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There's the statement. To this suffering, doing, suffering for doing what's right, to this you have been called. First notice that Jesus suffered for us. Christ suffered for you. Grab that thought. There's beauty in that. He died for me. Suffering is a reference to his death, and death is for us, in our favor, in our interest. Jesus died for me. This death, his death, serves my need. Have you come to that basic, fundamental understanding of the Christian faith and of the Bible's truth? Jesus died for me, in my interest. His death has something to do with my life. Second, notice that Jesus died in part so that we might follow Him in suffering for doing right. As one commentator puts it, I'll paraphrase, but Christ's suffering is expiatory and also exemplary. What does that mean? It's expiatory. It expunges the guilt of sin, but it is also exemplary. It serves as a pattern to emulate, steps to follow. Now for some, that might be fairly a new thought. I've heard about Jesus dying to pay the penalty of sin, but it is also Jesus dying setting a pattern for the way that I live my life, for how I filter life and look at it and live in response to it. My Savior died. My Savior suffered abuse. He did what was right in order to redeem us. That is a pattern for how I should think. The word used here in verse 21 as an example was used of tracing letters. Children tracing the letters to learn to write them. It's, it's almost as if Jesus' death is that, that picture. Remember as a kid, those that are really old people, that you put the tracing paper over the picture and you drew the lines and learned how to do it. Maybe some are... Maybe that doesn't go back as far as I thought. I'm seeing young people nod, so that's good. You remember that you just trace, you, you had no clue how to draw. But you could trace the line and you followed carefully. This is what we're being taught here. Jesus suffered death. Trace the lines. Follow carefully what he did and apply to your life. Those who just say, Jesus is my Savior, He died to take my sin, and His death has nothing to do with the way that I live my life, are not following Jesus as He intends. We are to follow Him. We're to trace our life according to His pattern. Specifically, verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. He committed no sin. Now, in the context, that means He did not sin in his response to those who persecuted him. Jesus, we know, was abused, particularly in the night of his death and during his crucifixion. He was abused horribly. He never sinned in the midst of that. It goes to say something else because a statement like this is never made of any human being in Scripture other than Christ. He did no sin. We must understand that the Jesus of Scripture was not just a good teacher. The Jesus revealed in Scripture was one who did not sin. He did not break the law of God ever. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we hear this from Peter, from the Apostle Paul, he says that he knew no sin. 
referring to Christ. The author of Hebrews 4.15, he was, quote, without sin. And John the Apostle, 1 John 3.5, in him there is no sin. Potentially four, how you cut it, possibly three different voices saying Jesus was without sin. We serve a sinless Savior. That is a very significant, fundamental belief of the Scriptures. He committed no sin. But again, back to the narrow context, it means he did not retaliate against those who sinned against him. That's the first thing you want to do. That's what nature instructs us to do, is to retaliate and to sin in response. He, not, he did not sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He did not use deception in order to escape suffering or to retaliate against his persecutors. He didn't go that way. Now again, specifically thinking of slaves, it'd be very easy to sin. It'd be very easy to use deceit to in some way get out of suffering or respond to it. 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he, was, when he suffered, he did not threaten. Reviled. People say terrible things about Jesus. They abused him verbally. He did not revile his attackers in return. He did rebuke. He did speak the truth in moments. But he didn't re revile. He didn't belittle and mock and use their unjust language back against them. When they threatened him, he did not threaten them. He could have called legions of angels to put all of his persecutors to death immediately, but he offered no such threat. Are you a follower of Christ? One of the most objective evidences is displayed in how we respond to those who trouble us unjustly. Reviling and threatening are natural responses of the self-dependent who fail to trust God's sovereign control of the universe. But when we put ourselves in the hand of God, we don't need to take things in our own hands, but we can leave vengeance with the Lord. He didn't retaliate. He did not threaten. He did not deceive. He did not sin. Sinned against, he leaves us a pattern of one who treats his enemies with honor. That's what he did not do. Notice verse 23, what he did do. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we're not to explode in retaliatory anger. We're not to withdraw in self-pity and fear. We are to respond to unjust suffering by entrusting ourselves into God's care. Let me say, this really is a significant word of counsel. Where we are suffering unjustly, where there is wicked accusation perhaps against us, do this. Entrust yourself to God. Jesus Himself endured unjust treatment, trusting in the vindication of God, who will judge justly. I don't need to do it. Knowing that eternal justice will be realized, I can turn every matter over to God and focus on forgiveness and His grace in my life. He has forgiven me. I don't need to judge others. 
That is to mete out a penalty against them. We, we notice then secondly that Christ's death secures our liberation from sin and our return to God, verse 24. And here at 24 and 25 we come to the deep theology of the text on which it all stands. Here it is. If you're getting sleepy, this is a place to pull back in. This, these two verses are as significant as there are in the New Testament. Not to compare verses and, ju- and, and to rate them, but these, this text really matters. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. He Himself bore our sins. Jesus took our sins. We note that the call to slaves to do a very hard thing, to endure suffering without retaliatory sin, is rooted in the rich theology of Christ's redemption. He bore our sins in His body on the tree, a euphemism for gallows or a place of execution. Also connecting to the Old Testament text about those who are cursed by being hung on a tree. Jesus was cursed for me. He bore my sin in His body as He was hung on the cross. He gave His body, yielding to the unjust death sentence against Him by bearing the penalty of the just death sentence against me. 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The one who did no sin dies in the place of those who did lots. Of sin. And the purpose or the result of Christ's death is now unveiled here in verse 24. Dying on the tree with our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the reason for it. To die to sin means to be liberated from sin's power and condemnation and live to righteousness. Jesus did not die to just give you a ticket to heaven. He died so that you would live righteously now that you would live a new and transformed and distinct life. He died bearing my sins so that I would live righteously. Continuing in verse 24, Peter says, By His wounds you have been healed. By His death we are given spiritual healing. Is that physical healing? By his wounds you have been healed. There are many who have taken this and made a lot out of it in a wrong direction, saying that this is referring to physical healing. So when Jesus died, what he did was purchase our physical healing. There's two reasons, I think, why that is not the case. The first is contextual. This text says nothing about physical healing. It uses the word healing but nowhere in this text would you get the idea that we're talking about physical healing. The emphasis falls heavily on atonement, that is, on the forgiveness of sins. He, what does it say? What have we read? He bore my sins, that I might die to sin and live righteously. Contextually, then, the healing in view is spiritual, the healing of a sin-sick soul. But secondly, what we have here is the past tense. A verb in the past tense that speaks of completed action. He bore our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. You're healed. The healing in view is a done deal. By the atonement we've been healed. 
He's not saying that when you were saved, you received the physical healing and would never become sick again. If this were the case, Christians would not get sick because what's happening here is not something we do, but something Christ did. It's a finished deal, a past completed event. So it's not physical healing that comes when we have faith in the midst of yet another sickness. You follow that? It's not, it's not physical healing in the midst of another sickness. This is your healed. Past tense, done. So whatever that healing is, it's a healing that has taken place, has been accomplished by Christ, is a finished and completed action. And that is indicated by the content of verse 25. For you were straying like sheep. He's obviously using figurative speech here, isn't he? Nobody out here is all woolly. We're not, uh, we're not sheep. Nobody thinks that when they read verse 25, and I don't think we should think in verse 24 that the healing is physical healing. They're figures of speech. We have been healed of sin. We have been liberated from sin, and as verse 25 says, we, have, we were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Beautiful words here. We have returned. The language of repentance. We have been lost, but we've turned and we've come to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The one who watches over our souls. The one who cares for our souls and sustains and leads us. Do you know what this verse means? that your soul has been healed as you return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Do you know what that means? Experientially, do you understand that? Do you say, I get that? Or do you say, I don't, I don't follow what that means? I think it's an important question to ask. Do you have a deep sense within that the Lord is your shepherd? that the Lord is your overseer, that He has healed you of the sickness of sin. Not that you sin no more, but that the power has been broken. Sin takes us astray, and it brings us ultimately to the judgment of God. But repentance is a turning from our sinful ways to find hope in the Savior who died for us, who bore the penalty of our sin. There's here a word of restoration then, spiritual renewal under the care of a Savior. Are you under that care? Are you walking in the steps of the shepherd and overseer of your soul? This is not something you buy into. It's not something you work your way into. It's something, it's an orientation and a response to what Christ has done. We're instructed here then that walking in Jesus' steps means trusting Him when others abuse us for doing right. It means not retaliating in kind. There's a, there, there's a concept there that we must grasp and put into play as believers. Now, there, are, there is application, I think, beyond this one idea of slaves and masters when misused by others. This plays into the relationship in marriages, husbands and wives sometimes, bosses, coaches, neighbors. There are people that don't do right by us. They do not treat us fairly. How do you respond? Are you in a war right now with somebody who's treating you that way? What we learn is that when we go to the cross and we see how Jesus died 
the righteous in the place of the unrighteous, we learn how not to retaliate, but rather to bless our enemies, to bless those who misuse us. If you want to follow in Jesus' steps, that's the path. That's not natural. Going back to our opening illustration, it doesn't, it's not what we want to do to go near that town of suffering. But that's where Jesus' steps lead sometimes, and when they do, we are taught and instructed not to retaliate with sin. We learn, secondly, that walking in Jesus' steps means looking long to our future reward, not living for the moment. There is a judge, and that's one thing that makes it all possible. I can put my trust and my confidence in the eternal judge of the universe who will get everything right. There will be no miscarriage of justice. I don't need to retaliate. I don't need to even things out. I don't need to make sure that justice is served all the time. Again, there are contexts where that is appropriate. But when it's a personal misuse, particularly when I'm doing what's right and others are abusing, I can leave it in God's hands and I can rest there. I can go to bed at night, put my head on the pillow and fall asleep. Because Jesus has got this. He's got it. I don't have to take vengeance out of his hand. I can leave it with him. We learn thirdly that walking in Jesus' steps means living in such a way that is actively, consciously rooted in the gospel. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 is rich Christological truth. Does this ring a bell to you? This is Philippians 2 all over again, isn't it? Rich Christological truth of Jesus leaving the splendors of heaven and putting the needs of others ahead of his own. What is he talking about? I want you guys to get along in the church. Put one another's needs ahead of your own. Let's look to Jesus who left the splendors of heaven. There's the rich Christological statement as deep theologically as anywhere we find in the New Testament, Philippians 2, 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, and it's all talking about really practical things. People's relationships in life. The relationships of my life, whatever they are, with whomever they are, should be radically informed by Jesus' death and resurrection. I should calibrate every such relationship to what Christ has done. Think about it for a while. How is it going to change the relationship that I have with a teacher, with a workmate, with a neighbor? It should. This is what we're being told. Walk in His steps. As you walk in His steps, it will transform every relationship that you have. So meditate on it. Think about it. How does the death and resurrection of Christ inform this relationship in my life? Are you suffering? Are you facing injustice from someone? How did Jesus respond to injustice? Put it into play. We can see the sun, but in the light of the sun, we can see everything else. Likewise, the gospel should be the sun in our world that lights everything that we do. When it comes to our relationships with others, whether it's government or law, the authorities of the land, Work, play, entertainment, we should trace out our lives by the example of Jesus and walk in His footprints, permitting nothing to deter us. This life orientation perfectly synchronizes with verse 24. 
he bore my sins in his body on the tree. That I might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds I have been healed. I have been delivered from the power of sin. And I now walk in relationship with the shepherd and overseer of my souls. He will take me home. And if his steps lead there, I can walk in them. I can walk in them with hope and confidence. Jesus took the best route. He left footprints for us to follow. Let's follow. And I might be talking to a few here today and you go, I just don't get that. I don't want to follow somebody else. Why would I look to some guy that lived over 2,000 years ago and follow him? He's not here. He can't do me any good. Yes, he can. And the reason you don't see the importance of following him is simply because you don't know him. When we come to taste and see that the Lord is good, we know there is no there is no better place on this earth to be than in His steps. Walking in His footprints. Following Him. If you don't see that, pray that you will. Talk to others. Continue to consider His Word. But come to know that the Lord is good. That there is no one else to follow that will lead you to glory and lead you to hope. Follow Him. Our Father, we thank You for the instruction of Your Word, for the example of the Son. These profound words that He bore our sin in His body on the tree. We thank You for this substitutionary atonement. This One who has taken our place and paid the penalty of our sin. And I pray that coming to terms with that reality in our life would so color the way that we see this world that we live redemptively in transformed ways. Every one of us here needs this rebuke. The Gospel does not penetrate our relationships as it should. It doesn't penetrate mine. And I plead for forgiveness and for insight Teach us, Father, I pray, to align our lives with what Christ has done and strengthen us to this end. Bring to saving light those who know not Christ as Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.